Last but not least, I'm going to invite up Caroline to come give us a word this morning. Let's welcome Caroline. Morning. Great to see you all. Um, my name is Caroline, as um, Mike mentioned. I am a formal pastor here. <laughs> so um, it's uh, great to be talking with you today. So it was my birthday last week. I thank you. <laughs> uh, so I'm stepping a little bit further into my 50s. Generally, things are good. I'm enjoying myself. But there are some inconvenient things about being older, as some of you would know. Your body starts to betray you, and you just get so afraid of getting hurt all the time. But other than that, um, one thing is that there are just more chances to realize that you have been wrong about something. It's, it's just probability, right? The longer you live. I mean, who among us has not regretted the hairstyles or the outfits of our youth? Or being so sure about right and wrong when we were younger, and then realize um, that much of life is lived in gray area. Or sometimes we learn the ways that our privilege blinded us and um, from seeing others' sufferings. Or that perhaps our parents were right about some things. Painful, painful realizations. But it is natural and necessary part of, uh, part of growing, right? Which we must continue to do even as adults. And this type of realization happens in our faith life too. And we might revisit certain aspects of our childhood faith and realize you're not quite right or have experiences that threaten the assumptions of our, our faith. Discovering that what you have believed to be true and built your life upon might, not be, un, might be unhelpful or inadequate or wrong or sometimes even toxic, can be a scary and painful experience. And especially when it involves um, the relationships you care about. Some people call this um, re-examination of faith deconstruction. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines deconstruction as to take apart or examine something in order to reveal the basis or composition, often with the intention of exposing biases, flaws, or inconsistencies. So if we go with this definition, deconstruction means re-examination of one's belief, worldview, and assumptions about reality and God which is necessary, an unavoidable thing, wouldn't you say? It is what happens to everyone who lives out in the world. Life comes and finds you, 
and you're faced with the reality, get hurt and bruised sometimes. The others suffer and be disappointed. It is not something we choose, it comes to us. And we must deal with it because we do not want to continue to build on foundations with biases and flaws and inconsistencies. And we must deal with it so that we come out of it better off, more mature, gracious, and loving. So today, I'd like to share some perspectives on how we might navigate deconstruction or re-examination of our faith assumptions so that we can grow in love and become more whole rather than jaded or resentful. Now, deconstructions has many different aspects, theological, emotional, psychological, and relational. They can be challenging and disorienting and requires care and healing. But just so you know how, what, uh, just so you know what to expect today, today's talk will be primarily about the theological and faith aspect of de deconstruction. Uh, if you'd like to talk more about emotional and relational aspects, please come upstairs, talk to me, talk to any of the pastors, and they'll be happy to meet with you. And I hope that the different, a different theological outlook could help you in other aspects of deconstruction as well. And you might be thinking here that this doesn't necessarily apply to me in my um, in, this, in the stage in my life right now. But I believe that what I'm going to talk about today relates to God, our relationship with God, and what it means to have faith in general. So hopefully, um, you, it will speak to you in some way as well. Let me pray for us as we begin. God, we pray for your presence, as Mike prayed as well. Help us be open to your presence. Help us let you in and be touched. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin by making a very obvious statement. We can't know God fully. God is infinite. God is boundless. We are finite, finite things. And the difference between infinite and finite is infinite. So I came up with this beautiful um, for, uh, formula there. You can, you can substitute x with a thousand. However, that does not mean that God is entirely unknowable or completely so different from us. God is also in us. God is in all things. Process theology argues that every being, you and me, and everything else, is always becoming, rising out of their past into the present, in relationship with all that is around us. And that 
Also that God is involved in every moment of our becoming. So through this becoming, God becomes part of us. God is not just infinite, but is within us. God is right here with us in every moment and is infinitely bigger than us. It is important that we keep this tension between God's infinity and accessibility. Um, as a sixth century Greek theologian, Dionysius said, God is all things in all things, and he is no thing among things. He is known to all from all things, and he is known to no one from anything. This might sound contradictory and counterintuitive, but I think our deep experiences tell the same thing to us, for us. For example, in the individualistic culture we live in, we live under the illusion that we are independent, self-sufficient beings. However, we also realize after a moment of reflection that our existence is deeply deeply intertwined with and dependent upon other beings, all others around us, not just human beings, but non-human beings, right? We cannot exist without other things. Like when you are in a deep conversation with a friend, and that moment when you are tuned into their thought, and their feelings, and you let them touch you, and you're connected deeply, and vice versa. The distinction between you and this friend becomes blurry. For a moment, but still. And we're irrevocably changed by that connection, the relationship. And we might even say that that friend has become part of you through that moment, that connection. If we think about this kind of relationship as the basis of our existence on Earth, then the cosmos, the whole world, is in us. Yet we're not the whole world, clearly. The, the world is so much bigger than us. And it is similar with God. God is in us, but God is infinitely bigger and other than us. We are in relationship with God, but we cannot fully grasp God. And what I said here is not revolutionary or even controversial. However, unfortunately, Christianity has a tendency to forget and confuse certainty with faith. So on the one hand, Christians say, we know the truth about God. And often this means that, and they don't. On the other hand, when someone has questions or wrestles with their faith, they are shut down with, God is mysterious. Don't ask questions, just believe. You see how it goes the opposite on both sides? That 
we forget that God is bigger than our understanding and that we have this intimate relationship with God. This certainty and arrogance, frankly, are often what lead to the need for deconstruction. But Christian theologians have known about this tendency in Christianity for a long time and have tried to balance this. There's something called negative or apathetic theology, and it attempts to do this by negation, by affirming something and then negating it, by saying something and unsaying it. So the, the quote we, we just read by Dionysius says, God is all things in all things, but it has to be balanced with God is no thing among things. And God is known um, to all from all things and also known to no one from anything. And while we're at it, um, another negation I want to add that this sixth century male theologian forgot about is that God is a he, but God is not he. God is a she, but God is not a she. God is he and she. God is non-binary. God is no, none, of, none of the above. Well, the argument can be made, God is closer to non-binary than one gender. So the negation is an acknowledgement of our ignorance, our limitations. And it is crucial for healthy faith, for a kind of faith that grow with us and not the kind that we need to grow out of. And some might object that um, the truth is plain, plainly demonstrated in the Bible. God revealed it to us, so we need to just believe the Bible. Well, the contrary to this assertion, even the Bible speaks with many and often conflicting voices. The Bible does not speak about God in one voice, and the Bible is often deeply ambiguous, morally and theologically. In fact, the Bible as a whole practices some, a kind of a negative theology. Um, by saying one thing and then saying the complete opposite, constantly negating itself. For example, the Bible starts with two creation accounts that conflict with each other. It, it starts with it. Another example, the Bible laws, biblical laws, prohibit the people out of God from marrying non-Jews while constantly telling stories about them marrying non-Jews and including them in their genealogies. The genealogies in both the Old Testament and the New Testament often highlight these contradictions. The Bible says to us, don't associate with others and this other, the, the others are part of us. One more fun example. On the one hand, in the biblical culture, the firstborn sons are a big deal. So much so that they get double 
portion of the inheritance. On the other hand, in so many stories, it is always the second or the third or the fourth son who, who, who's chosen. None of our patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, um, Isaac, Jacob, none of them were firstborns. Judah, King David, Solomon, none of them are. So the Bible says one thing and then constantly unsays that thing. Why is this important and necessary for our faith? Negative theology would say that when we affirm something about God without acknowledging that the words are limited and that God is bigger and deeper than our understanding, those affirmations about God have a tendency to come between God and us and limit our relationship. They become idols. Because we worship God in affirmation, right? That's necessary. We don't, we say, God, you're good, which exactly the one of the songs we just sang. Um, we don't say, God, you're not bad. <laughs> but even the most innocuous statement like, God is good, also can get in the way of knowing God. First of all, what does it mean for you that someone is good? They are kind, they always do the right thing, compassionate, gets you out of trouble every time, on, your, on the side of your football team and not the others. What does it mean? We have our own image of good, consciously and unconsciously, and that image, while helpful to describe and understand God, sometimes, I would say most of the time in this case, but it is not God. Like if you were to think of a friend as, oh, she is such a positive person, as a compliment, but that's, if that's what you think every th time you think of her and you interact with her, then it gets in the way of you knowing her more deeply in her positivity and negativity, joy and sorrows. In the same way, affirmations of God without negation can hinder our relationship with God. So the negation is not just about being difficult or quarrelsome, but comes from a genuine desire to know God. As Dionysius said, the same person, the impulse behind perpetual negation, then, is a yearning for God that will accept no proxies, that is to say, no idols. So here, let's talk a little bit about a few common metaphors of God that might get in the way of our understanding or our relationship. Example. God the Father. Does this help us get to know God? Yes, to a degree. But this also limits our relationship with God. And at best, the word described the Father might conjure up the image of an 
benevolent, older, caring man, and a man. In some other cases, it might have a negative picture. It might bring up an image of God who is controlling, violent, and exacting, or absent and indifferent. What do you think about when you say, God the Father? We also like to call God the King, Jesus the King. This has even more tricky issues because what do kings do? They rule. So this image can evoke in us a God who rules unilaterally with absolute power. And if God is the one who rules with absolute power, then the broken things and the tragedies we face every day, we read every day in the news, they do not say great things about God and God's rule, do they? So this imagery constantly creates friction with our everyday experiences of the world. It gets in the way of knowing God relationally. Kings also go to war. And there are a lot of military imageries um, that describe God. God the warrior, God the almighty, God the conqueror, the victor. And do we wonder why some Christian cultures are so gun-obsessed and macho? How about God is holy? God is holy. God is holy emphasizes God's otherness, God's perfection. And at the same time, when we say God is holy, we also mean and feel every time that we are not holy. We are unholy don't we? It reminds us of our unworthiness, and in contrast, God is so utterly and entirely holy and beyond us. This usually doesn't help relationship. So it needs to be negated. God is other, and God is holy, and God is here. God is in me, all around me. God is in the dirt, God is in the river and trees. God is in you. God is in our enemy. And we also call God Lord, like all the time. It is all over the Bible. And you may have noticed that when you read the Hebrew Bible, that's the Old Testament, though the word Lord is sometimes written in all caps or not, sometimes not. There's a, yeah. Um, the regular Lord, um, without the capital um, letters, means Lord. It means my Lord. But the Hebrew, be, Hebrew word behind the Lord in all caps is not, does not actually mean Lord. It means, uh, it's actually the unsayable name of God. So in Judaism, it is forbidden to say God's name. And this practice was carried over into the English translations of the Bible. Um, and deno denoting God's name instead with 
LORD in all caps to distinguish between the two. But without this understanding, what we get is the title LORD all the time we read or we say that describes our relationship with God as that of the Lord and the servant instead of God's name. So what is God's unsayable name? What is the meaning behind it? One explanation is that this name comes from the root, wor root word, Hebrew word, haya, which means to be or to live. And this um, comes from this famous story of the burning bush. So in this story, Moses was a shepherd in Median 40 years after fleeing Egypt, after killing an Egyptian who was abusing um, a Hebrew, Hebrew person. So in Median on the mountain of Horeb, Moses notices that a bush is burning, but not burning up. So there's negation, contradiction there, right? Fire, but not fire. Bush is burning, but not burning up. So Moses gets close to it, and God speaks to him there. God tells him to go back to Egypt and lead the enslaved Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses does not want to. He argues with God, and then this is what he says in Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say, say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So this I am, is the basis for God's unsayable name. What does I am mean? Why is God named I am? There have been a lot of debates about this, as you can imagine, and no definitive answer. Some theologians argue that it refers to God as the foundation of all beings. God is being itself. But at the very least, we don't know what it means exactly, but we can speculate that perhaps any other name would have become an idol. Any other description would have become an idol. So God says, I am, rather than I am something. Not creating an idol, an image of God, is a big deal in the Bible, as you know. It is at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. But this is not because God is egocentric or because God has thin skin and is easily offended. It is because idols come between God and us. They keep us from knowing God, going deeper into the relationship going deeper into the mystery and the beauty. God's name, I am, but tells us God is. We don't know what God is or who God is fully, but we know God is. 
And thus, this name is an invitation into a relationship with God. It's an open invitation. God is. And it is not only that we yearn for God, but also that God yearns for us to be in a relationship with us. God says, I am. That God wants us to know God relationally and not just have knowledge about him, about God. Because it is in relationships, not knowledge, that we change, we receive and give. And in this relationship, God comes and dwells in us, and us in God. Have you thought about that? We are, God is in us. Also mean that we are in God. Deconstruction, in a way, is kind of a negation, right? Denying and unsaying what we had thought we knew about God. We thought God was like this. We thought faith worked like this. We thought God's people would be like this. Deconstruction or doubt or the wilderness experience of our faith, whatever we call it, often comes when we are disappointed or hurt or when the people we care about are hurting and suffering. It might have been started by all the hate in the world as well as in the church that we experience and witness or loss, trauma we may have experienced, unrealized hopes or rejections. Or it could be that what we had learned about God does not make sense in this world anymore. So we take apart and examine and say, no, I don't believe in a God like this. That is negation. And it is absolutely necessary in faith in a relationship with God, and in any relationship. For a deepening relationship, we must always be stepping closer, denying any preconceived ideas about this person that gets in the way of true understanding. To know a human being is like this, and how much more to know God. Deconstruction is a heady word. It's abstract. It conjures up an image of, I don't know, collapsing house of cards. So maybe we can think of it more as a beginning of a romance, a romance with God. And passionate romance does not exclude strong emotions like anger, doubt, or resentment but we press in instead of turning away because we desire to know the other and desire to be with them. Let it guide you, if you can, in this season to step closer to God, to step closer to love, to get to really know someone. So I have already talked a lot, I think. Um, so I'll keep the practical suggestions short, but if you have any questions, thoughts, 
please come upstairs and um, uh, there will be lunch. So uh, chat with the pastor. So my first suggestion is don't be afraid of acknowledging and processing your doubts and questions, but also do not disregard your previous experiences of God. So here we need the balance too. Doubts and question are a natural part of our faith, very natural part of our faith journey and our growth. We need them. Acknowledge and process them. But when we do that, we are sometimes tempted to disregard all that came before. Our personal experiences of God, our unique relationship with God as something, I don't know, we've imagined. While it is true that we often misunderstand God and misinterpret our experiences of God and what they might mean, and that's perhaps something we can reflect, but we should not disregard the whole of the relationship with somebody who was there, is there, with God who is. There was a person there hearing you, responding to you, interacting with you in those moments of your experiences. Continue to respect those experiences, that person who is and was there, and respect yourself in them. Second suggestion is listen and not yet know. This is actually a quote um, from the theologian Catherine Keller's book, Cloud of the Impossible. And she writes, here, let us mark this listening as apathetic discipline, to listen, not yet know. The simple yet powerful insight applies to all relationships. To get to know someone, we must listen and not yet know. Listen without already knowing what the other person will say, what you will say back to them. So listen to God and listen to others. Go to a conversational prayer workshop, I think might be coming up. Um, go to life groups, listen and share to connect. Be open to connecting and changing. Because de deconstruction or reconstruction, it's a personal journey, but you do not need to do it alone. And at the end of your processing, if you decide that church is not for you and organized religion is not for you, I understand. I sometimes feel that way too. We will not hold it against you. But hold on to love, on to connection, because whether you're religious or not, we live in a world of relationships. And love is what holds our life together, any life together. Thank you. <laughs>